I want to think about arguments at Christmas. What is most likely to cause a Christmas argument in your family? Is it food? Is it relatives? Or is it the TV? Just what is most likely... I think you can vote a couple of times. Uh, What is most likely to cause a row over Christmas in wherever you're going to be? So, it's relatives. We had that this morning, and it was the same response. What it is about your relatives. Um, there's something stressful about Christmas where we meet up with people perhaps who we choose not to meet up with for the rest of the year. Why do we meet them? What's going on? Second one. What is most likely to cause a Christmas argument? Uh, Games, phones, bedtime. Games. Um, Hands up if you don't play Monopoly anymore because it causes massive... There you go. (laughs) There you go. My advice, spiritual advice to you, stop playing Monopoly. Don't play any game where one person gets eliminated two hours before everybody else. It's bound to cause upset. Don't play any game that involves money bound to cause upset. Put them together, you're in trouble. Um, Right. I'm going to pray for your Christmases. Father, we just pray (laughs) as we think over the coming weeks of what's to come. We're aware. We're aware that this time brings difficulty. Pain, conflict, disappointment. Lord, will you help us? Amen. Next one. Uh, what is... Oh, we still... Can we go back to a mentee? Sorry. We are on mentee. Why have I, what have I done here? Okay. What is most likely to cause a Christmas argument? Tiredness, busyness, expectations. Oh, I love a race. Interesting. You're much more... It's different to this morning. It's different to this morning because... So you're going for tiredness in the moment, but it's pretty close uh, alongside busyness and expectations. I think expectations is a killer, and lots of you will know that this is what I think about life. I think that a large proportion of our unhappiness begins with the fact that we expect to be happier. And so we have an expectation of something. It's going to be brilliant. We're going to have the great, greatest Christmas ever. It's going to be the best meal I've ever cooked. It's going to, uh, we're going to have a wonderful family time. It's going to be a great game of Monopoly. We have an expectation. And it's never as good as the expectation. So then there's disappointment. Whereas I go through life expecting everything to be rubbish and expecting it, it to not work out. And then I'm pleasantly surprised. If I expect, oh, no, we're going to play Monopoly, it's going to be a disaster, we're going to have a row, we're going to have to throw the board up in the air, everything's going to go wrong, and we managed to get through with only 25 minutes of rowing, I feel better, because it wasn't a disaster. Expectations. Something about the media adverts just 
blows up Christmas, doesn't it? And then there's tiredness, trying to do too much. And it's hard. It's hard. Uh, have I got one more? I can't remember. Let me just... Uh, no, I haven't got one more. We'll come back to that in a few moments. If we go across the other computer, I accomplished nothing this week because the office is so cold, my hands turned into blocks of ice. I accomplished nothing this week because the office is so hot, I can't concentrate. Are you two of the same species? That's a grey air because it would be impossible for us to mate. Do you ever think somebody else is completely the wrong species. They are completely different. Maybe it's because they're always hot and you're always cold, you're always cold and they're always hot. But maybe it's because they vote this way and you vote that way. It's because they like football and you don't like football, because they like this kind of music and you don't like that kind of music, because they wear those kind of clothes and you wear these kind of clothes, because those, they have those kind of friends and you have these kind of friends. And you think, how is it that we're similar human beings? How is it that we have anything in common? How do we deal with difference? How do we deal with conflict? How do we deal with arguments over Christmas? Uh, so they, they go to court. Welcome to the temperature court. Uh, sometimes we think that if we could resolve every conflict by going to court, it would resolve it. Well, let's see what happens. On one of you has frozen appendages and one of you is burning up only one temperature can rule the office. I rule that the thermostat must be set at exactly 70 degrees, 72 degrees, and both of them are unhappy. And sometimes it seems impossible to bring people together. It seems impossible to find a way through a solution. It's either one person wins or the other person loses, or the one person lo loses, that person wins and the other person loses. Birds not of a feather. Sometimes Christmas ex highlights isolation. It highlights conflict. It highlights division. It makes us feel more alienated. Perhaps from family. Perhaps from friends. I want to read you a, a quote uh, from a philosopher, Schopenhauer. He talks about the human race being like porcupines, very prickly, and that we are huddled together in the cold winter's night of disillusionment with life. Life is difficult. And he says, the colder it gets outside, the more we huddle together for warmth. But the closer we get to one another, the more we hurt one another with our sharp quills. And in the lonely night of Earth's winter, eventually we begin to drift apart and wander out on our own and freeze to death in our loneliness. He's saying, human beings, we try to get close to each other for comfort and strength, and we end up hurting each other and pushing each other away, and we freeze to death in our loneliness. That human beings, we are desperate to not be alienated from each other. We are desperate to be in community. 
We're desperate to feel loved and to love. But we're prickly, and we find reasons why somebody is not lovable. And one of the things that we're very aware of, I think, is the the division and polarization that is epidemic in our culture. And it seems to me, and I think a lot lot of people and a lot of commentators on life, that this is accelerated over the last five to 10 years. Now, that may well be largely to do with social media and the internet, that that people hold incredibly strong opinions, whether it's over nationalism, whether it's over politics, whether it's over Brexit, whether it's over uh, gender issues, whatever it is, a real sense of people really polarizing and pushing other people apart. And I want to explore what it means to be one with humanity, with each other. This is the context we've been looking in John 15, 14, 13, 14, 15, 16, where Jesus is on the last night, it's the night of the supper, it's the night he's about to be betrayed, and he's left the last supper, and he's gone uh, to the garden, and he's praying, and he's about to be betrayed, or he's going to pray, uh, and uh, a few hours to come, Judas is going to come. And we looked at this the last time I spoke, a couple of weeks ago. He talks about um, uh, bringing glory. Uh, he talks about having the authority to give eternal life. And we talked last time about what this life of heaven is. And we're going to pick it up at verse 9. And I pray for them. So this is Jesus. He is praying for the disciples, them I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. He's not praying for those who don't recognize Jesus. He's not praying for those who've rejected them at this point. That happens on other occasions. But at this point, he is praying for the disciples, those that he has received from the Father. And what would our prayer be? Now, some of you will go, no, well, I know where this is going. But just imagine you don't know where it's going. If you were Jesus, and this is the last prayer you pray before your crucifixion. What is it that you would pray for the disciples? It may be that you would pray comfort for them because they're going to be bereaved and things are going to be difficult for them. It may be that you would pray power for them, that they would be incredibly powerful people. I don't know what it would be that you would pray. Jesus talks about his glory again. We'll go, if you go back to some of our previous talks, we've, we filled, I filled in, my, you go on our YouTube channel, just go through the Johns, come to the word glory, you'll see one or two talks on that. And, uh, or if you want to get podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, uh, Sound, Spotify, they're all on there. If you look for Sutton Coldfield Baptist Church. This is his prayer. I will remain in the world no longer. But they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them. So his prayer is that they would be protected by the power of your name, the name that you gave me. We'll come back to that in a moment. That's his prayer, protection. But what does he want them to be protected from? That they might be one as we are one. Protect them from division. He's saying to the disciples... Uh, we're praying to, obviously the disciples are hearing this prayer. That's why we've got it written down for us. Why is it so important that Jesus prays that the people who follow him come together in unity and are not divided? And what does that look like? Does that mean they're all the same? You've got some of the, fact the disciples were political uh, 
extremists in completely the opposite directions. You get some were called zealots, which means they wanted to throw out the Romans. You get some who are called tax collectors, which means they worked for the Romans. How do you bring unity amongst such a different group of people? One group of people saying, we want to cooperate with the Romans. Another group saying, we want to overthrow the Romans. Why was division harmful for a disciple? And why is it harmful for us who claim to follow Jesus? Why does it matter if there are rows in our family? Why is it harmful to us? if there is division within a family. And I appreciate, and I'm so conscious, trepidatious, that this touches real raw nerves for many of us, that there is trauma and division within family life. And Christmas just blows it up. Because either we do go and meet with people who we find very difficult, or we're conscious that everybody else is meeting, we think, happily, and we're not seeing them. Some of those of us, too, are involved in division in the workplace. And there's conflict where we work. And there are groups or factions or individuals that are isolated. There are people who are really, really difficult. So this is painful stuff. And it may be that we've experienced that in church. We're not immune to people who have experienced that here, sadly, perhaps, in different relationships, or perhaps in, a, in another church. We went through a period about 25 years ago where we had real difficulty. And by the grace of God, we, we worked our way through that. But we're not immune. And we may be particularly concerned about the divisions within our nation and the divisions that we see perhaps in America or Ukraine against Russia, and the way in which those deep-rooted divisions affect us. So it is harmful. But why is it harmful? What does it do? Well, it demotivates. It takes away energy. We think, I can't get up and do something good because I'm weighed down by the criticism or by the fear of conflict, by the words that are spoken. And it consumes time. It takes up time to think about how we could do this, how, what we could say to a person to put it right, or what we could say to win the argument, or what we, could, what we need to do to avoid it kicking off again. And not only time, but it consumes huge emotional energy. It drains us because we're just on edge when is it going to kick off? When is it going to be difficult? How are we going to get through this? Why can't they see it from our perspective? Why can't we win? Why are they doing this? And it takes all our focus and distracts us from the main things. And we're going to come back to that in a few moments. What is it that God really wants us to be thinking about? Because Jesus is saying he wants, uh, wants the Father to protect the disciples from this specific attack of the evil one. Because it takes us away from doing what we're really meant to do, and we'll come back to that. And it polarizes. So polarizing is a word that we hear a lot. What does that mean? Polarizing means that you take an issue uh, that you disagree with somebody over, and you put them in the box of disagreement, and then you then 
extrapolate that they will disagree with you about everything. And therefore, they are completely bad. It may be to you that it doesn't matter that England lost last night. And you may feel that people who get upset about football, that there is something wrong with them. And you may be right. <laughs> but I get upset about football. And so we polarise. We've got a group of people who feel that people who get obsessive about football are in the wrong, and people who get obsessive about being football, about football, who can't understand why the people who don't get obsessive about football. Now, what happens with polarisation is that I then think, you then think, well, that Donald over there who's obsessive about football, I bet he's also obsessive about music, and I bet he's also obsessive about clothes, and I bet he's also obsessive about <laughs> Brexit, and I bet he's, bet he's also obsessive, obsessive, and you put in all the things that you feel strongly about, and because you cannot understand why I like football, it must be that I will be on the side of everything else that you disagree with. That's polarisation. Suddenly, we can't speak to each other. It started with football, but it's morphed into every single thing that's wrong with the world. And because we're judging each other and suspicious of each other, we're not listening to each other. And we're not discovering that maybe it's only football that we disagree on. Maybe football doesn't matter. I know it does, but maybe it doesn't. And polarization is when the world is divided into them and us. And the problem with dividing the world into them and us is that every time we find a reason why somebody is not us, we put them in the them box. And the them box gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the us box gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And so we get really interested in the conspiracy theories that tell us about what the us, the, the them people are doing to the world that's going to destroy us. Because we feel isolated. Because we've extrapolated everything. Polarization. Another thing that happens with division is we avoid people. It's, we're uncomfortable with them. We avoid being alone with that family member. We avoid that person in the workplace. We, we, we change our lunch time. We go in at different times to the office. And we're thinking about avoidance, not the other things that we might do that day. Or we get into damaging arguments. We get into damaging arguments where we say things because we're, we're trying to get this person to agree with us. We're trying to get them to understand that we're right. We're trying to get them to, to change their way of thinking. And, and because they're not, we're getting frustrated. And because we're getting frustrated, we start to generalize. We start to use two of the worst words you can use in relationship. Always, never. You always do this. Polarization. Put them in a box. They always do this. You never do this. Polarization. Put them in a box. You never do this. And what happens is that me in the box hearing that I always or never, I think of the one time I did. So we're now having an argument about nothing 
we're just having an argument about the fact that it isn't always isn't true and never isn't true, and then we've morphed into a really silly, damaging argument, which is so frustrating that we start to say other things like, I hate what you're doing. And we get so wound up, we end up saying, I hate you. And we end up saying things that it's really, really hard to undo and that you can't take back because they're out there. And right at that moment, we think we meant them, but we probably didn't, but we said them with enough sincerity that the other person goes, you meant that, and we don't quite know how to get out of that. So that's why Jesus is really intent on praying that they might be united and not divided. Because that behavior, and, and I've, I've worried, I did try to think whether I should change this word this afternoon from this morning, but it is ugly. It's unattractive. We don't want to go and visit those, that family where there's going to be rows the whole time. And we feel kind of awkward and embarrassed, don't know where to look. It's not attractive because it stops love being demonstrated. Because love is not expressed in judging or condemning or polarizing or suspicion. And so the real root of, of all of this, why Jesus is saying, will you protect them from this strategy of the evil one? See, the devil isn't so really interested in scary things that fly around the room. Just wants to turn people against each other. Division. And the real reason is this, that it makes the teaching of grace, mercy, and compassion and the unfailing love of God hypocritical. Because if the disciples of Jesus are divided, everybody goes, well, you have nothing to teach us. Nothing. And this is a, 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 an area of life that perhaps any of us that have been Christian for any length of time will know that this is the biggest battle to bring love into difficult places and difficult relationships. Every church experiences conflict. It's a natural part of worshipping in a community with other people. But it is one thing to have shallow conflict and deep unity. It is another to have shallow unity surfacing pleasantness most of the time and deep conflict. And in, when you're in leadership in any role, whether it's church, whether it's business, whether it's community, whether it's family, there's conflict and it's painful. But we want to have a shallow conflict and a deep unity. We don't want to pretend unity, a shallow unity. We want something that's real. So how might we do this? Let's go on and look at more, a little bit more of Jesus' prayer. He says, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. So how was 
how was the presence of Jesus in the disciples' life? How was that able to keep them safe? How did that work? He says that he did that by the power of his name. His name is his character, his reputation. When we talk about the name of God, we're talking about his character, his personality, his reputation, who he is. We might think of three particular names of Jesus, the Son of God or Savior of Jesus or God with us. So how does this reputation, this character described in these names, how did that maintain unity? As the son of God, he had authority. When he was with the disciples, they argued about who was going to be the most important, who was going to sit on his left and his right. And he told them, stop it. He had authority to rebuke unhelpful agendas and say, stop arguing about these things. He had his example as, a, as, as one who exuded grace and mercy, who welcomed those who had been caught in sin and encouraged them to sin no more, but he did not condemn or throw a stone. He went out and met with those who others had ostracized. He told them to come and, 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 and get him food and to eat with him. So his example of modeling grace and mercy was one that... Uh, help the disciples get together. This zealot and this tax collector, they could see that Jesus was offering them both the same grace and the same forgiveness. And his presence, Emmanuel, God with them. Just the, the, the presence of Jesus, I imagine, stopped them arguing. You imagine they just started to argue and then they, they, they could see Jesus, they just see something in his eyes and they stopped. But he focused their attention on him and not each other. And he brought peace. Except Judas, who was lost to division, arguing about how Jesus' ministry was wasting money. I'm coming to you now, he says to the Father. But I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that you may have the full measure of joy within now, we talked about that again in a previous study, so go and look that up about joy and God being with us, but we're going to crack on. He says, I've given them your word. I have taught them stuff, and the world has hated them. So what has he taught them? He's taught them the values and principles of the kingdom to come, of heaven, of the future. We talked about this eternal life. Not the values of the world. The world is a self-centered humanity that says, do what I want. The values of heaven are, what can I do for others? So the values of heaven are grace and mercy. How can I bring redemption? How can I restore? How can I rebuild? How can I express the mercy of God? The values of heaven are a sacrificing, serving love that washes the disciples' feet, that dies on a cross in our place. This is the word that he's taught them. This is what he's demonstrated. This is what he's imbued in them. He's summed it up by the command to love one another. He's modeled generosity and simplicity. He's not a crude loads of stuff for himself. He's lived simply and he's given a stuff away. And he's taught them to be grateful and to worship. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. I can't take you away from Christmas. Jesus' prayer is not that in some miraculous way you wake up tomorrow and it's the middle of January and you've avoided all the problems. God's prayer for us is not that you don't go to work and you don't have to experience the difficulty or that you're not in family or that you're not even in church. 
It's not being taken out of the world. It's not avoidance or removal. It's to win a battle to maintain unity. It's not about an easy life. <coughs> he repeats it. They are not of the world. You and I are different. Why are we different? Because we're to be people of grace and mercy. We're to be people who live out sacrificial love. We are to be people of generosity and simplicity. This is different to the world. We're not of the world. But his word has come into us and is encouraging us to be people of gratitude, of thanksgiving, of worship. In other words, to be people who obey that command to love. He says, sanctify them, which means to make holy, which means to set apart and purify for this single task, to separate and say, this is what you're going to do. If you're a top athlete, you sanctify, you make yourself holy for the pursuit of that gold medal. He says to the Father, make the disciples devoted to the things we've taught them, grace and mercy. Work it out within us. Let us be set apart. Let this be our goal. Let us be what we're about. Let us be wholly committed to these things of generosity and simplicity, of gratitude and worship. In other words, to love. And some people say, why don't you just say love, Donald? Because the more I use the word love, the more I realize that most of our culture, we don't know what we mean by love. We just think it's something that people do for us. And it isn't. Or we think it's a feeling, and it isn't. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. We're not to withdraw. Then I for them I sanctify myself. Jesus was dedicated purely to love. That they may too be truly sanctified. Why is he dedicated? That we might grow in grace and mercy. He was committed to this mission to teach the disciples. He spent three years showing them how to live. He was committed that we might be people who take up our cross, who wash others' feet, who follow his example, who live with generosity and simplicity, who live in gratitude and thanksgiving, and who love. My prayer is not for them alone. Whoa, wait a minute. I pray also for those who believe in me through this message. That's us. This is the only time you get a mention in the Bible. Jesus is going, I want to say something for people in the future. I've got a prayer for them. It's a prayer for us. What does Jesus really, really want for us? Wealth, success, comfort, that they may be one. Just as you are in me and I'm in you. The prayer is unity with each other and with God. So what does that look like? It's a sense of peace, not conflict. It's the absence of aggression and argument and belittling and excluding. It's peace, not conflict. It's security, not fear. It's feeling loved and belonging and wanted and appreciated rather than being afraid of what people will say. It is affirmation, not discouragement. It is feeling and hearing that we 
are believed in and being built up, not torn down. This is our relationship with God and this is what he wants us to have for each other. And this is his prayer for us in family, in work, in church, in nations because it leads to joy. What is this unity? It is a unity of purpose. It is the main thing, as we used to say a lot, when particularly when we're coming out of that period of division, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. A unity of purpose. How do I get on with people that don't like football? I resolve that that is not the most important thing in the world. There's a more important purpose. It is to reach the lost. It is to make disciples. It is to transform a broken world. It is to bring good news to the poor. It is to set the captive free. That's the main thing. And you know what? Whether we like football or not, it doesn't make any difference to it. So unity comes from purpose, and it comes from a unity of method. How are we going to reach the lost? Well, this is relatively easy because there's one method in the Bible. It is love and compassion. It's the command, love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. And he's going to say in a moment, then then people will believe if they are united. But crucially, it means valuing diversity. You only have to look at the person next to you. They're different. Do you know, God doesn't like things the same. He likes people with different hair, different skin tones, different mannerisms, different passions. I think God loves the fact that some of us love football and some of us hate football. I think he enjoys that diversity. I think he enjoys the fact that some of us are passionate maybe about children and others of us are passionate about older folks. Some of us are passionate about worship and others of us are passionate about prayer. Some of us are passionate about uh, helping with food bank and others of us are passionate about making a difference at work. Whatever it is, he loves the diversity because he created it. And so we encourage each other to be different. The prayer is unity, that the world may believe. When there is unity, people are attracted to Jesus because instead of us being hypocrites, there is a demonstration of the reality of God's life in a person. And then he repeats the whole thing again. Verse 22, 23, says the whole thing again, that they might be one, that the world might know Complete unity, not partial, complete, not conformity. We're to be different parts of the body. The eye doesn't say to the ear, you're no good. The ear doesn't say to the, to the nose, you're no good. Or nor do they say, which Paul doesn't say, but it's inferred, nor does he say, but you're not, you should be the same as me. The nose doesn't say, why is nobody else smelling what's just gone off in this room? And the eye doesn't say, why can nobody else see what's just gone off in this room? Complete unity is a valuing of diversity. 
And he tells us to hold on in this unity. He's coming back. He wants us to be with him. But for this moment, we are still in the world. And he has revealed his love and grace. So, how do we cooperate with God's work to keep us unified? We work for love, not victory. The goal is not to win the argument. The goal is not to batter that other person into agreement or conformity or apology. The goal is to love one another. In in Ephesians, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And in verse 3, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. Do absolutely everything you can. Work, work, work. What's missing is the way. He says, be completely humble. Don't think that you've got all the answers. Don't think that you know everything. Don't think that you're the best. Don't think that, that everybody else is wrong. Be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. And there is a common purpose because there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Unity of purpose. This is the main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Paul says in Corinthians, you know, I'm banging on about this so much, and I know I'm I'm laboring this point, but I just need to say it again. It's such a crucial passage. 1 Corinthians 13, it is not about weddings. If we speak, if I speak with the tongues of angels, if I have faith that can move mountains, if I can fathom all mysteries... And I do not have love. I am nothing. I can be right. I can be miraculous. I can be powerful. But if I have not love, I am nothing. The main thing is to keep the main thing. The main thing is that we love one another. We love one another means we love the difference. We love the diversity. And we recognize that there is one focus for us, God and his unity. What does it mean then? How do we cooperate with God's work to keep us unified? How do we help that prayer be answered that Jesus prayed for you and for I? We we need to have our priorities. We need to recognize what really matters. Whoops, what really matters. And we focus on it. How do we make disciples together? That's what we're focused on. What really matters in the family? What really matters in the workplace? I'm going to focus on that. I'm not going to focus on the things that irritate and the things that annoy and the things that are different and the things where the other people are wrong. I'm going to focus on what we agree on. I'm going to focus on what we're really about as a family, as a workplace, as a church, as a nation. And we do so with humility. We do that as as Paul talks about in Ephesians, be humble. And we're patient with one another and we listen to one another and we learn from one another because we're never closed, locked down, knowing the answer to everything. 
and we've always got stuff we can receive from others. And we watch the horizon for disunity developing. We look for where we might be getting into relationship difficulties at home. We look for where things might go wrong in the workplace or in the friendship group or in the family or in the church or in the nation or online or in the social media. We look, we're scanning. What are the things that might be going on that, will, that Satan is using that will lead us down a bad journey? Unrealistic expectations. Expecting people to be perfect when they're not. Expecting church to be perfect when it's not. Expecting our partners to be perfect when they're not. Expecting our children to be perfect. They're not. Expect our family members to be irritating. We might be pleasantly surprised. Expect them to be perfect. We're going to be disillusioned. So have we got unreal? We're looking in ourselves. Have I got an unrealistic expectation for this Christmas? Secondly, we watch for the goddess, gossip of criticism, where we, people whisper in our ears negativity about somebody else or about that particular people group or that nation or people who think that way, football lovers, what they like. And we listen and it festers. And actually, we need to come off that platform, whether it's Twitter or whatever it is. If it's just all about criticisms of other types of people, pull away. Don't have anything to do with it. If it's going to create this polarization, we come off it. We watch out in ourselves for the arrogance of certainty, where we think we are absolutely right. There's no need for us to apologize or to change, or to listen, or to learn, or to grow. And we stop judging difference. We stop being afraid of people who hold different views. Maybe they thought the song we sang earlier was brilliant. Maybe you thought it was awful. We don't need to be afraid of each other. Maybe we think scripture means this. Maybe we think scripture means that. We don't need to be afraid of each other. Maybe we voted this way. Maybe we voted that way. We don't need to be afraid. We don't judge those who see things differently. So some questions for reflection. I'm going to ask um, Noah and, and the team to rejoin me. Where are we experiencing division? And where might we focus on love, not victory? I want to help us respond in three ways, one of which is to sing and to focus back on Jesus, the main thing. The other is to go to Menti, and I want to invite you to pray using Menti for a moment. So we're going to pop back there if we can. And... Uh, I want to invite you to answer this prayer. I think you can answer more than once. I hope you can. Just between you and God, what is your prayer? Where is it that you feel God is saying to you, this is what I need to do in the home over Christmas
amongst my friends with that broken relationship in the workplace. Lord, we bring to you these prayers. Help us to be those who cooperate with unity. to pray now for places of division if we go across I want to just lead us in praying and give you space to pray we're conscious of those who are faced with decisions about striking we're conscious of division within the NHS and other places of work we want to pray for that we're conscious of nations that are divided we want to pray for that and maybe there are families that you are aware of or involved in that are divided Would you stand with me? Let's just give you some space to pray quietly. Lord, we bring to you the places of division that we know of. Will you bring your healing Will you bring your wisdom? Will you bring your transformation? Will you bring your peace? Blessed are the peacemakers. Where you call us to bring peace, not division, will you help us? Finally, Lord, we bring to you our conflicts and our struggles with others, our porcupineness. And we ask that you'd help us to keep the main thing the main thing. So we turn our eyes away and look to you. And we find a unity of love. There is one Savior, one Lord, one Redeemer, one God one faith, one hope, one spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, and lead us as we look to you and as we worship.